we're going to shift gears a little bit and get into the practical issues of prep. And I can't think of anybody better than our next speaker, Dr. Hyman Scott, um, a physician researcher at UCSF and the Department of Public Health in San Francisco, um, has a training uh, at UCSF as a resident, chief resident, ID fellow, got an MPH from Berkeley at the same time, and now really works in the community, especially among um, uh, gay men in San Francisco, and especially uh, with disparities, uh, trying to find the best ways to test for HIV, test for HDI, link to care, uh, and also uh, for those who are not infected with HIV, get them into PrEP programs. So, um, I mean, it's great to have you here today and uh, look forward to hearing your talk. Great. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the invitation to, um, to talk a little bit about uh, implementation of uh, PrEP in clinics. And I think that um, sounds like there's a mixed audience in terms of PrEP experience. So hopefully you can touch on some elements that are useful for, uh, for everyone. So uh, um, I have no uh, relevant disclosures. And these are my learning objectives. Uh, talk about uh, PrEP candidates, uh, describe some of the PrEP regimens available for different populations and how uh, an approach that we use to determine and to support uh, patients and clients making decisions about what might work best for them, particularly given that new uh, PrEP agents are on the horizon. Hopefully in the next couple of months, we have injectable. PrEP as an option, um, and then monitoring uh, patients on PrEP and uh, supporting adherence. So I think it was really exciting when the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force uh, gave PrEP a grade A recommendation, which uh, with the Affordable Care Act follows the uh, requirement that um, insurers cover the full cost of this for prevention. Um, and so this was really, from a policy standpoint, tremendous in supporting uh, PrEP implementation um, and covering some of the cost issues that uh, are, have really been central uh, to PrEP before it was um, became generic. Um, and so these are some of the uh, key elements we think about when we're uh, initiating someone on PrEP and continuing them on PrEP. It really uh, is focused on the laboratory elements. The clinical evaluation for many of our patients is uh, quite minimal. Um, you know, I think some of the evaluations that we do for our diabetes are more complicated than some of the evaluations we need to do for PrEP. Um, and then financing is a huge piece that I think uh, providers, uh, clinicians, and prescribers are often um, totally uh, unaware of the implications for. And we often have seen this come up as we've seen patients who are initiating, trying to initiate PrEP. Uh, go to the pharmacy, are told they have an $1,800 uh, bill that they have to pay to pick up their uh, Truvada at the time. And so these are some of the elements that we try to integrate into uh, how to start someone on PrEP um, and then continuing them on PrEP with sort of a quarterly visit uh, schedule, which is actually for a lot of our patients who might not be engaged in care frequently is an opportunity to do other things like ensure they're up to date on vaccinations, um, do some uh, counseling, uh, substance use counseling, those kinds of things. So um, as, a, as I mentioned, access is uh, really uh, something that impacts our uh, patients tremendously. And in, in a lot of our qualitative work, 
Um, it's something that uh, patients also often describe as one of the biggest barriers and providers um, often don't mention as, a, as an issue. Um, so uh, talking, talking to the patients about uh, how they're going to cover the cost of not only the medications, but also visits and labs, you know, we're doing uh, HIV STI testing um, and patients with they get a $500 bill will be a barrier, even if uh, the cost of PrEP is covered. So uh, the grade A recommendation has been really helpful um, for uh, coverage for those who are insured. Um, and there are folks who uh, don't have access to insurance um, for a variety of reasons. And there are assistance programs uh, that are in place to help cover some of those costs. Some of the states actually have a program. So there's a PrEP app program in uh, California, for example, that uh, is focused on addressing some of these uh, access issues and will cover the cost of visits and labs and the cost of medications uh, to really cover the full cost of PrEP access. Um, and then many patients are actually eligible for insurance, but uh, need support going through the process. So uh, providing that type of help. And this is something that I think uh, leaning on the team-based model within the, our clinic settings, uh, having uh, staff that can help with uh, patients navigate through that insurance. Um, and so when we think about navigation, um, really thinking about how do we help people uh, get onto PrEP and this can be passive or active. Um, there's been some studies looking at um, how well navigation works, which uh, to helping people uh, start on PrEP. Um, the pilot studies show that um, some of the active, more strength-based navigation um, uh, resulted in more people starting PrEP. Um, and, uh, but the, the data has actually been quite mixed uh, on the role of navigation, um, mostly focused on um, uh, sort of insurance and cost issues and its impact on helping people uh, get onto PrEP. Um, in one, um, one study in our clinic settings here in San Francisco, navigation is actually associated with faster PrEP initiation um, in a clinical setting. And it really was our navigators doing a lot of counseling um, and education on PrEP and dispelling some of the myths that some of our patients may have had about uh, some of the toxicities related to, uh, to PrEP. Um, the current CDC guidelines, and I'm going to go through in a second, the uh, proposed updated guidelines uh, really focus on uh, groups, three groups, MSM, uh, heterosexual uh, women and men, um, and people who inject drugs. And you can see that these are sort of the criteria um, and um, really talking about number, high numbers of partners, which is, um, you know, uh, uh, up for a debate what high is, uh, inconsistent or no condom use, uh, commercial sex work. And for people who inject drugs, uh, having an HIV positive partner, uh, sharing equipment, um, not in drug treatment, um, which has been associated with uh, HIV acquisition, um, and then risk of uh, sexual acquisition. The revised guidelines are actually uh, much uh, simpler and so really focus on um, any uh, bacteria, having an HIV uh, positive partner, whether that's a sex partner or injecting partner, um, a bacterial STI or history of inconsistent or no condom use. Uh, the new gut recommendations will also uh, sort of highlight that universal prep education um, and recommendation to inform all of our sexually active um, patients about prep, um, and then to offer prep to anyone who's asking for it. Um, if somebody's asking for prep, they there might be uh, you know uh, activity that's not being disclosed, um, and then providing this universal prep education. Um, without sort of framing this in a risk uh, context is really sort of underpins the new CDC guidelines. 
Um, and one of the things that when we're doing uh, work with our providers here, uh, many of our primary care clinics is really talking about like, how do you talk about uh, sex without talking about risk uh, and really taking a, a sexual history focused on um, partners, uh, gender partners, um, and uh, really reflecting the gender spectrum, um, types of sex that uh, people are having, whether condoms have a role or not in their uh, sexual activity, um, past STI uh, history and uh, testing approaches, and then um, ensuring that for people who are able to become pregnant, um, desires for pregnancy and prevention methods. So this is one of the uh, examples that we talk about with as far as the language that we use. Um, I think a lot of our language around PrEP is being for high-risk people. Um, uh, high-risk sexual activity really has uh, undermined our approach to try to get this uh, rolled out more broadly because a lot of people don't consider themselves high-risk. It's often seen as uh, relative and to other people in their uh, networks. And so what we've tried to do is focus on a sexual health-based approach, talking about it, reducing anxiety and taking control, and that uh, risk is not part of the conversation that we have with our patients around why PrEP might be a good option to consider. And um, I like to highlight also that risk reduction counseling is oftentimes uh, discussed as something that you know, we should be including in um, our discussions around PrEP. And I uh, just wanted to highlight that there are several studies. This is a, the WHERE study, which was a randomized control trial of 5,000 um, clinic patients in STI clinics in, in the U.S. that had a, a brief individualized patient-centered counseling, which is actually probably more than what most of us do as providers and clinics. And the bottom line is it just didn't work. Um, and there are other non-randomized studies and random um, and review studies um, and systematic review studies that have shown that for HIV uninfected individuals, that risk reduction counseling is not effective. And in this AWARE study, actually, there were higher STIs among MSM who received counseling compared to those who didn't. So in some ways, it's not only doesn't work, but it might be harmful for some of our population. So Risk reduction counseling is not something that is that I would recommend doing um, in the setting of PrEP, supporting individuals um, in achieving their sexual health goals and uh, supporting adherence are important, um, but risk reduction counseling um, is not effective. Um, and the same was for Explore. Uh, this is a larger study that was uh, completed in the early 2000s. Um, and this was an intensive one-on-one -on -one counseling for 10 sessions with quarterly maintenance counseling. And again, that there was no effect uh, on HIV acquisition. Um, so the Ypres-Gay results, I just wanted to go over briefly uh, since those were covered earlier, um, really focusing on the uh, efficacy of the um, of on-demand PrEP with uh, really high relative reduction in HIV cases um, and that individuals were not taking daily um, PrEP during this time period, on average about 18 pills per month. Um, and then the Prevenar study, which uh, was an open-label perspective study, um, that also showed uh, high, um, high impact on uh, incidents with uh, in, um, uh, approximately 361 uh, HIV infections averted. So really providing the evidence for um, on-demand PrEP as an option um, for our, our communities. 
So in the US, uh, 211 um, with uh, F, uh, TDF FTC um, is uh, only is recommended by the IAS USA guidelines. It is in the new updated recommendation from CDC, um, but is currently the only license indication by the FDA. Um, and that uh, for daily uh, TDF FTC um, for uh, cisgender women and people who inject drugs um, is the option. So for uh, 211 prep, these are some of the considerations that um, I think about for who might be a good candidate for it. Um, and so uh, daily prep uh, is for anyone. Um, 211 has really only been studied in MSM. Um, if somebody has chronic hepatitis B, um, thinking about uh, the safety for uh, ensuring that you know the hep B status and provide vaccinations for those who uh, might still be at risk. Um, and then the planning uh, around uh, the need to, um, to have at least two hours advanced to be able to take the two pills um, versus daily where uh, no planning is needed. Um, and this has been actually, we've seen a lot of back and forth during the COVID pandemic um, as people's sexual um, patterns have changed. Um, there's been more switching back and forth between 211 and daily. Um, and then the forgiveness idea around whether or not it's forgiving of missed doses um, and uh, ability to adhere to um, sort of the two before uh, and one uh, 24 and 48 hours after. Uh, sexual activity. Um, and then uh, as part of our discussions, we talk about condoms uh, and condom effectiveness. Um, and so there are uh, some data that condoms are about 70% effective um, and uh, in heterosexuals, it's about 71 to 77%. And then in MSM um, from data from two large cohorts, um, suggesting about 70% effective. And the, the MSM data is actually quite interesting and in that this is 100% condom use. So if condoms were reported to be used anything less than 100%, then there was actually uh, no evidence that they were effective. For um, initiating um, PrEP, some of the baseline lab testing uh, outlined here, so uh, what we currently recommend is doing a fourth gen, uh, preferably fourth gen uh, HIV antibody antigen assay uh, within seven days. I think I definitely in a, um, in a clinical setting, if somebody is eight days since their last test or even 14 days um, and has no symptoms of acute HIV, um, I've definitely started prep uh, for people in that, that scenario. And then uh, HIV viral load testing, if it's available, um, and especially if there's a concern for any acute HIV symptoms um, is uh, the sort of the baseline testing that we do. Um, and then uh, rapid-based testing has actually been um, really useful in a lot of our clinical settings to do same-day starts. Um, there's some implementation um, considerations, particularly for hospital-based clinics where it's dependent on the laboratory to uh, cover the CLIA um, for the point of care testing. And so getting buy-in and support for the rapid base, blood-based testing. Um, and then um, with uh, anyone who uh, uh, has acute HIV symptoms or is initiating uh, initially, having an ability to send out for either laboratory-based um, fourth-gen testing or uh, HIV viral load testing as well. Um, here in San Francisco, we actually have access to a pooled uh, HIV viral load. So they pool 10 samples together, uh, run the um, viral load testing. And if the pool turns positive, all of those samples are tested individually to identify um, uh, the, the individual who um, was likely acutely infected. 
Um, this is just a brief um, uh, timeline of, of the HIV infection and where you would see um, the positive uh, test. So with our RNA testing, uh, we can see a positive test out at about 14 days. Um, and then um, with the earliest antibody text in about 20 to 25 uh, days. So uh, really trying to capture, particularly in places where there's high testing. So um, in our community here, um, over 95, 96% of MSM are aware of their HIV infection. So our community is enriched for people who might be acutely infected or have early infections. Um, and so uh, using this pool strategy has been best for our local epidemiology. Um, and then other testing we do at baseline um, is kidney function uh, testing. The only test really needed is creatinine. Some clinical sites uh, also do ALT or, and, or AST testing um, as well, given um, concerns about uh, potential hep C. Um, but in oftentimes here, we're doing a metabolic panel. It's, it's, it's easier to, um, to order. And uh, in some clinic settings, particularly for Quest, ordering an individual test is actually more expensive than ordering the panel. Um, so um, you will likely get abnormalities uh, on those metabolic panels um, that might need some follow-up, but um, those are generally how we approach the kidney function testing. We do three-site uh, gonorrhea and chlamydia testing um, and do a syphilis serology, and then hepatitis B, uh, A, and C testing, and then pregnancy testing for all of our uh, patients who are able to become pregnant. And um, as we uh, prescribe PrEP, we um, generally just confirm, of course, that somebody is HIV negative um, and doesn't have any acute symptoms, um, and also actually doesn't have an indication for post-exposure prophylaxis. So definitely had individuals uh, coming in for PrEP who actually have PEP indications, um, and then doing the baseline testing so that we can transition them directly from post-exposure prophylaxis to uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and then for all populations, and I think this uh, goes back to some of the decisions and discussions around TDF versus FTC. Um, and um, so daily TDF FTC with two refills. Um, we have some data in our clinical settings that the, um, lower, the lower number of refills associated with more discontinuations. So trying to minimize gaps that somebody might have in their, um, in their uh, PrEP use. We've also seen providers that have prescribed a year supply of TDF and um, you know, there was no follow-up testing that was done. And so um, sort of the sweet spot seems to be about 90 days and that's what's in CDC guidelines as well as some of the other guidelines. Um, and then uh, daily uh, TAP FTC, again, this is um, uh, for uh, rectal exposure primarily. So MSM or transgender women um, and then on demand, um, uh, for with TDF FTC again, 90 days. And the reason we recommend 90 days is um, because individuals might go back and forth between um, on demand and daily prep and want to make sure that individuals don't lose um, access to prep uh, if they're using it more than um, uh, you know just on demand. So for the follow-up testing, uh, generally every three months with the quarterly visits. Um, and then as Rafi had mentioned, um, the role of potential viral load testing um, for uh, in the setting of cabotegravir LA use. And I think um, locally, um, what we're con considering is whether or not we would just do the pooled uh, viral load testing for all of those cases. And two of our clinics here 
our municipal STD clinic and um, our clinic uh, called Strut, which is in the Castro. Um, this is already done where pooled viral load testing is done on all individuals who are tested for HIV. Um, so uh, integrating that into the, the flow for cabotegavir um, and we'll be able to evaluate whether or not that um, is able to identify uh, infections that would have other been, otherwise been missed uh, by a rapid testing. Again, uh, going back to rapid testing um, as, a, as an option for uh, follow-up uh, lab testing as well. And then uh, the kidney function testing every three to six months, um, STI screening. Um, I generally do that three to six months. Uh, I do have some patients who I do uh, STI testing every, every month and um, uh, syphilis serologies as well um, as needed. And then um, annual HCV screening uh, for MSM, people inject drugs, or um, others who might be at risk for um, hepatitis C. And so if somebody has a negative antibody, HCV antibody at baseline, then we would do antibody test screening. Um, if somebody has either been cured of hep C, um, then we would um, do, and has a, a positive antibody, uh, we would do viral load screening. Um, and there's been several studies that have actually shown quite high incidence of hep C among uh, particularly MSM populations uh, within the US and within Europe. So this is something that we do at least annually. The other advantage of the metabolic panel, if you do see LFT abnormalities, um, those are often been associated either with syphilis or with uh, incident hep C. So another advantage of potentially doing a ASTLT with the, um, the quarter labs. Um, and this is a, a slide that uh, John um, Michel had, um, had presented at one point. This is one of the probably the most common scenario that we encounter where somebody has uh, ambiguous or discrepant HIV test. There's a positive HIV antibody screen, a negative confirmatory test, and maybe the viral load is pending. Um, so what we generally do is repeat all the testing, including uh, RNA testing, and try to use a different uh, platform um, if possible, and then um, have to make a decision about what we do with their uh, medication. So um, the options are really to continue PrEP um, if they've been highly adherent um, and that provides protection, but you risk developing resistance if, if somebody is truly infected. Um, you could stop PrEP and reassess HIV status. Um, this might facilitate diagnosis, but the risk of infection is high, particularly if somebody has continued uh, sexual activity. So really counseling and discussing with the uh, patient around their ability to abstain if that's possible uh, and to allow um, to assess their HIV status. Um, and then start ART where um, it might be associated with drug-related uh, adverse events, although I'd say with the current regimens we have available, that's less of a risk. Um, and it uh, also uh, makes it somewhat difficult to confirm the diagnosis. There is a, um, uh, a funded prep line um, that's based here in San Francisco that's available for these questions um, and um, also access to uh, research testing, including some ultra-sensitive HIV viral load testing. Um, it, we've seen uh, prep, a lot of PrEP discontinuations, and um, you know, I think some of the data suggests that you know, uh, prep, ongoing PrEP use is around 50 uh, to 60% at best uh, in many of the populations in uh, the U.S. And I think this gets to Rafi's point about, you know, uh, daily prep doesn't work for everyone and that um, adherence and particularly ongoing adherence is actually not at the level that we would hope it would be. 
Um, and then we've seen, um, particularly during COVID, as things have opened up, even prior to that, uh, cases where individuals stopped PrEP uh, and then subsequently were diagnosed uh, with HIV. Um, and so something that we want to really support uh, individuals um, to, to maintain and continue on PrEP and reduce barriers to access. And we've seen this uh, in our clinics here as well, and we've seen some racial disparities as well as uh, gender disparities. Um, and that um, is something that uh, we want to try to support and make it easier to um, have people continue PrEP and uh, make, make our systems better fit uh, what people might need. So one of the ways that uh, we've thought about this is uh, thinking about task shifting. Um, so having non-prescribers provide education, adherence counseling, the financial and navigation support, standing order protocols so that, um, uh, that patients can get their testing done um, at, at their first visit without necessarily seeing a clinician initially, um, and then minimizing uh, the, the clinical evaluation if it's indicated. Um, so for example, we have uh, our navigator We'll talk to our patients uh, in one of our clinics, do the adherence counseling, um, order the labs, and then send me a telephone encounter, and I will talk to the patient, start them on prep um, same day. So those are some of the ways that makes uh, it better for patients to be able to start prep uh, quickly. And then uh, streamlining the delivery, um, so allowing our um, uh, patients to have standing orders, just drop in and get testing as needed, um, supporting uh, self-collection of swabs. Um, at either at home or in clinic bathrooms. And then we've used express visits um, at a couple of our clinics here where patients just drop in, do their labs, um, and then see their clinician um, annually. Um, so it really reduces the barriers for patients. And telemedicine has really expanded during um, COVID. It's definitely um, allowed access. Um, and um, for some populations, I think it's not a uh, universal uh, plus for all of our patients, but for those who uh, can engage with it um, and it matches their needs, I think it is uh, really, really promising. Uh, we have several companies that are already providing telemedicine-based prep. Um, we don't know uh, yet uh, the data on how well it works for uptake and persistence, um, but texting and particularly for some of our younger populations is also um, a potential uh, tool. Uh, home testing, just a, a brief um, a comment on that. So there are some labs that are uh, supporting home testing. Um, and then in California, actually now insurance health plans have to cover it. So um, I'm at the end of my time. So um, just wanted to brief summary and looking forward to the Q&A session. So um, we should offer prep education to everyone, not talk about risk, give people choices and make it easier for them to um, start and stay on prep. Thank you for your time. Thank <laughs> you.